Hello, everyone. This is Karen from San Francisco. And this is Alex from Los Angeles, and welcome to Movies That Shaped Us, a journey of self-discovery through a shared love of film. And Karan and I are two longtime friends who grew up on opposite ends of the globe, have very different backgrounds, and we both have been shaped and are still being shaped by the movies we see and love. And every episode, we'll cover a topic around important people, places, events, and moments in our lives, and then explore it through three of our favorite movies. And we won't be sharing our lists in advance, so you get to react along with us as we learn about each other through the selected films. So we hope these movies and topics are fun and revelatory to you as they've been to us. And uh, great, Karan, why don't you tell us uh, what we're talking about today? Yeah, so today's topic is movies that shaped our love of film. Now, given <laughs> the topic of this podcast, this is probably the most important episode that we're going to do. Uh, and it just so happens that we are in November, December time frame, recording this episode. But then as this reaches out to you all, we'll be in the thick of award season. So it's exciting to kind of talk about these movies in the context of that. But, but really, for us, this topic was, at least for me personally, coming from the germ of that specific time when I really started to see why do I care about film? What does it mean to me? And because I'd always liked film and was always interested in it, but there was this tipping point where I started to lean into it a lot deeper and started to become a cinephile. So these movies are uh, sort of a, a, a touchback to that very specific moment in time for me. Uh, how about you, Alex? Yeah, very, very similarly. Um, there was a period of time really uh, late, uh, my late teen years, early college years, it was when I really kind of realized that I not only loved film in terms of just going to the movies and, you know, watching Star Wars 30 times, um, but appreciated it like as an art form um, in terms of how films are put together, what they can say, um, you know, the, the the types of talent that work behind the camera in terms of putting putting this work to light. So it was a very hard list to come up with uh, because there are so many films, but I, I do, I think I found, you know, the, the top three that for me really helped um, turn me, like you said, Karan, into a cinephile and not just someone who enjoys going to the movies and, and watching watching movies, which is what it was like, you know, for me growing up. That was my first, I was, I loved movies, but then what was that transition into being a cinephile, you know, to not to be too snooty about it or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it was a hard list, but, but I think it'll be really fun to talk through. And I'm super interested in terms of uh, your films on this too. Um, yeah, me too. And yeah, this was the hardest uh, list to prepare for sure for me as well. But what I said to myself was that every movie that we are going to pick on this podcast has actually in the broader sense shaped our love for film, which is why this list is very specific to that moment in time when like and enjoyment started to translate into love. So, so yeah, do you have any thoughts on sort of your framework of how you are coming up with ranking your lists for this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you hit on it right then in terms of the higher level. When did that like turn into a love and appreciation? I think for me, it was really the appreciation piece, uh, appreciation of film as an art and what it could do um, is how I approach this. Like what were the films that uh, along the way gave me different pieces of that whole puzzle of really appreciating film as you know what I think and something I think you do as well as like the ultimate form of art and what that really means um, so that's how I was looking at this yeah I totally agree 
we've sort of been knowing each other as friends. We've talked about kind of what draws us to films. So I sort of know a little bit of how we overlap and how we also differentiate. But I think the framework of the ranking was is similar, like the way you said as well, where it's a progression of, you know, you start with smaller elements, but then they sort of all com- come up and combine into a larger theme, if you will. So, mm-hmm. okay. So with that, should we jump in uh, sure. to our list? Okay. Uh, Alex, do you want to start with your number three? Sure. I can start with my number three. So my number three film that shaped my love of film um, is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 1966 release, uh, directed by Sergio Leone, starring Clint Eastwood. And the IMDb plot is a bounty hunter scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune of gold buried in a remote cemetery. Um, So this film I first saw on DVD in college while studying film. Um, and this was a time where, you know, I went off to, to USC, was studying film, starting to learn about the film, like analyzing techniques, um, how films are made, what are the different ways um, that, uh, you know, artists can express themselves through film. Um, and one of the things that I kind of was very attracted to uh, was this idea of like mise-en-scene, which is sort of the visual representation of everything that appears before the camera, you know, mix of shot composition, sets, props, actors, costumes, lighting, you know, and cinematography is something I was very interested in as well. And, you know, the approach at, at USC is there's a lot of, you know, uh, very important or high art films that we're sort of analyzing through this lens to help us learn about what film was. And for me, why, why this film really resonated was I saw it after have for the first time after having really learned about these techniques and was blown away by how Sergio Leone was able to express himself in this way through this film. Um, you know, a lot of very, very interesting like shot compositions, a lot of super close ups, um, fast editing, quick camera movements, uh, but also the way he would set up the actors in the scene. The, my favorite part of the film was at the very end um, where the three main characters are in, in this sort of Mexican standoff shoot off position. Um, and just the way that he builds the tension in that scene is just masterful. Um, but what, what really struck me about this was this movie was, is basically for all intents and purposes, a B movie, you know, shot the spaghetti Western genre was basically cheap knockoff Westerns shot in Europe because they were much cheaper to produce. You know, it was a genre that was popular in the U S at the time, you know, so this was not a, um, you know, some big, you know, uh, prestige production, right? But this person, uh, Leone, was still able to create something that I saw as actual art. And I could pull out these elements now that I learned uh, more about how to recognize them, pull out them out, out of this film. And to me, then, what this shows is really that that movies, yes, there are like the classics and the, you know, the films that are like, you know, the Cleopatras or there are these big, you know, productions, but that doesn't necessarily, and it made it in Hollywood, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that those are the only films that can be art. Um, and that really that can be from some low budget film, um, some B Western, like uh, good, the bad and the ugly. And really you can analyze movies um, no matter like where they came from, like what the, um, who was working on it, like they can all still be art. Um, so that's what really started thinking me like, you know, popular and movies for the masses can also then be art as well. Um, and it's uh, something where I, now every time too, when I see movies that are come out now, like big blockbusters, like an avatar, or even like Avengers Endgame. Yeah, these are big budget, quote unquote, popcorn films, much like, you know, Sergio Leone was making Good, the Bad and the Ugly just to be a 
audience pleaser film, you know, uh, very cheaply made, but that there could be some art and meaning uh, um, behind them and that uh, not to sort of be so looking down upon, you know, lower films, quote unquote, that actually some of those lower films that were made in like a schlocky way could actually be saying something and uh, you could be impacted by them just as much as you could some higher film. So it was very impactful for me at the time, realizing I have all these tools, but I can use them to analyze not only, you know, the great works of, of film art and film history, but actually movies that at the time, at least, were viewed as just, uh, you know, B-movie knockoffs. Um, yeah, fascinating. Um, and that, that theory that you just said resonates with me quite a bit, which is that art can come from anywhere. And this is where also, I think film is so powerful because it's a visual medium, because it's a textual medium. It takes a life of its own. I don't know if the term cult classic applies more to any other art form than it does to movies, only because of that, that something can be reviled in its time, but then over time, people come back to it and see what it was really trying to do or say. And also like all art forms, art is personal, right? So for Leone, this was a personal endeavor. Uh, he wasn't thinking that I'm making a B movie probably. He was sort of yeah. making the movie that he wanted to make, you know, which is the other fascinating thing here. I don't remember the beats of this movie to a large degree because I've seen it in bits and pieces over time, but mm -hmm. the classic tune of this movie is embedded in every human's mind. Uh, and I feel like I've sort of known that tune my whole life. I don't remember a time that I've not known a tune. And that also speaks to the artistry of the movie and how different departments work in concert to create something. So great pick. Cool, great. Uh, so let's uh, hear the start of your list. What's, uh, what's your number three? Yeah, so you probably heard me talk about this before, but for me, movies, because it's the way the, for both of us it's like a high highest form of art but the, the reason why it's there up for me is because to me movies are a portrayal of human condition human behavior uh, they are a reflection or a mirror of who we are as people the times we live in uh, movies are a way to tell stories about people but because they're visual we also bring our own perception and our own baggage uh, to engage with them and that has its own life. Uh, so that's the part that really has drawn me to movies. So everything on this list will in some way or the other speak to that. Also another note at the very top of my list, this is where I think where we were born and how we grew up really impacts our coming to becoming cinephiles. For me growing outside of the US and I sort of came to a lot of the classic films much later in life. So for me, this time period is time period of sort of mid 2010s, where I was sort of really getting into movies, living in LA, having friends like you pointing me to various film references and such. So, you know, had I born or started this endeavor in a different decade, this list would be totally different. <laughs> so, you know, that's sort of the luck of the draw here. So with that said, my number three is... Brief Encounter from 1945, directed by David Lean, starring Celia Johnson, Trevor Howard, Stanley Holly Holloway. Uh, and the quick description of the movie is, uh, meeting a stranger in a railway station, a woman is tempted to cheat on her husband. Doesn't get simpler than that. And so why is this movie on my list? I think a big theme of the human condition, human behavior part that 
movies sort of underline for me is love. I think our relationship to love and and such has been shaped by pop culture, of course, but by movies more so than other. And I think there is something so powerful about this movie as to how it not only transports you to that time and place, which is literally a railway station where these two people happen to meet, but this very unsaid and said chemistry and relationship that's developing between them is almost voyeuristic in a way. Uh, and this is sort of where I think another principle that I would highlight is that to me, movies work when all the departments of cinematography, costume, music, light, etc., all coming together in service of the story, in service of the characters and the people that is highlighting. And David Lean obviously is a master of doing that. And I love putting this movie on here because it's it's a quote unquote smaller movie, a more intimate movie from David Lean's canon. I could have easily put any of the other ones here, uh, but I love the intimacy of this. And to me, that is the power of film. Uh, I think this was also one of the first few movies I saw that exposed me to nationalistic acting where not a lot is happening. Uh, not a lot is even said, like I said before, but you are with these people all the way and it's so character driven. Um, there is no global catastrophe uh, that's gonna happen. The stakes are actually very low, but because they're so personal and meticulously crafted by the actors, their lived in performances, and of course, all the departments working in concert, the stakes are actually really high. You sort of are at the edge of your seat, trying to imagine what's gonna happen. Are they gonna leave their spouses? or no, are they gonna to be together? Uh, and then the final thing I would say is, again, I think something about human behavior and condition is that uh, the, the husband uh, that she's married to when you finally meet him, he's actually a good guy. There's nothing wrong there. Uh, and I think this again, underlines the power of film that life isn't that black or white or, or people aren't that black or white where, oh, I did this because this happened or this trauma happened. People do things for all sorts of reasons. And I think this movie sheds light on that. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's my introduction to the world of film in service of you know, presenting ideas and, and human behavior in a rich, but yet light way. Like it's not heavy handed at all. Uh, so that's my number three. Well, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies, actually. Um, I'm a, like you, I'm a big fan of David Lean and, and probably like you came into him through more of his later, you know, epic filmmaking works that he's more known for. Um, <clears throat> and once I saw those films, I then went back and saw much of his smaller films because a lot of his uh, earlier period work is smaller in scale, like you said. Um, but uh, I think in a way this, like you were saying, I don't think the stakes can be any higher when it comes to love, actually, you know? And I think that's what this movie is ultimately about. Um, do you, when you find it, do you stay with it or not? Um, and uh, yeah, no, this movie had a, um, yeah, had a big impact on me when I first saw it as well. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of this movie. Um, it's uh, definitely, if, if folks haven't seen it, highly recommend um, watching this film. It's fantastic. And holds up you know obviously like i mean i only watched it for the first time what a decade ago but i feel like time moves so fast and weird ways that watching it again recently 
I, I had the same feeling again, even though I know exactly how the whole thing plays out. So I think that also is a power of film. Um, what's your number two, Alex? Yeah, so my number two um, film, uh, and this is, uh, yeah, it may be a bit cheesy to include this in a way, um, but uh, my number two film is Citizen Kane, 1941, directed by Orson Welles, starring Orson Welles, um, plot summary, following the death of a publishing tycoon, Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meeting of his final utterance, Rosebud. Um, you know, this film obviously is very well known. Um, I think when we grew up, it was talked about as the quote unquote greatest film of all time. I feel like that moniker might've been placed upon the film around when we were growing up um, in the in the 80s and 90s. Um, so it was obviously a film that I had heard of before I saw it, uh, but was exposed to this in the 90s. Um, so I can't remember exactly how old I was. I want to say it was probably junior high or high school, um, but on VHS. So this is before even DVD. So my dad actually exposed it to me. He's like, oh yeah, you've heard of this, like you should watch it. Um, and I watched it and had been, was completely blown away by it. Now I had seen a lot of black and white films growing up um, or older films, I should say, not even black and white, like older films, classics, you know, like Wizard of Oz or Hard Day's Night. It wasn't like I hadn't seen older films before. And, and I could tell the difference between just the aesthetics and the, the, the pacing, the film techniques between old and new. Like you can definitely, you put down, an, you know, you're in front of a TV and you watch like Close Encounters of a Third Kind, you know that that's a newer film than if you were to watch um, you know, Brief Encounter, for example, right? This film, though, when I saw this, it felt brand new. Like, it could have been made last year. And it, that completely blew me away. And what, what really got me interested um, in film even more after seeing this for the first time was how it got made. Like, I was just so blown away by, like, how can a movie that seemed like it was made last week have been made that long ago, how did he construct it? And again, this is pre, you know, DVD. So there were no making of special features on this VHS tape. This was, I don't want to say pre-internet, but it wasn't like I could jump online and like look up Wikipedia in like 1993 and like learn about the film. So I had to go out there and like go to the library, the physical library and get actual books. And it was just it was fascinating to me for the first time. I was like, how was this thing put together? How did he create this, uh, you know, the visual scenes again, because I am a very visual, visual person. Like, how did they do that? A lot of matte paintings like cutting holes in the floor and, and putting the camera so you know far down where you're capturing shots that no one had ever thought of. And I think the advantage that Orson Welles had was because he was not a filmmaker. He was an artist who was using a medium for the first time. This was his first film. Um, he had come from radio and, and stage. So he was bringing his, his artistic talents to a medium that he didn't know how to how um, how to use it. And therefore he shaped the medium to, to fulfill what he saw as an artist. And I think that led to a lot of groundbreaking things uh, on the technical side and how he shot and put this movie together, which is what I think to me made it seem so fresh and so new. Um, so again, I know it's a little cheesy putting this film on, on the list in a way. Um, first of all, I feel like it, it has to be talked about in, in a certain sense, but <clears throat> secondarily, what it really did for me was give me this appreciation and understanding of how films are made. And then also to, for me to just understand that these timeless films can feel just as new when you first see them, even decades after they were made um, than when they, when they first came out. So I think it was this avenue of under, like trying to look at how films are made is what, why I put this thing on uh, this movie on my list as number two. Yeah. So you said you watched this movie when you were pretty young, um, did you understand 
the movie and what it was trying to say and and such other than sort of appreciation for the craft and the filmmaking of it yeah i mean obviously it has a lot of themes like the narrative themes i don't think i really picked up on i mean the, the plot is pretty easy to follow you know a, yeah. a rich guy who you know was born in poverty and then becomes super successful and then sort of regrets different things in his life so overall i, I could follow it but yeah the more times i saw it over the years not only did i appreciate uh, i had more appreciation for it just as filmmaking as i learned more about that even af after that point but no i mean the themes in the movie start and the message quote unquote of the movie definitely was something that didn't really resonate on me when i first saw it i was more just blown away by the fact that um from the from the technical aspect of it and that it did feel like it just come out last week um but yeah that's why this film is so amazing because there are so many different ways um to to examine it but yeah I, I just don't think i was mature enough honestly for the themes of the movie to resonate and narratively but it was definitely like the filmmaking techniques yeah no i figured yeah i mean obviously this is one of the greats um a lot has been said about it i have actually actively avoided this movie <laughs> or did so for a very long time because of that moniker itself mm -hmm. because it sort of felt I don't know maybe this is the 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 little rebel in me that oh I'm not going to you know start with this movie which has been touted as the best movie ever made and such uh but the real reason I think is that I think I needed to develop my own film understanding and language to fully meet this movie where it's at in all its you know stuff not just the the filmmaking but the themes and what have you so i actually watched it fully honestly when mank came out um i'd seen scenes and such before um but i'd never seen the whole thing and of course it blew me away the the sense that you're talking about of this movie being made recently was very palpable um and yeah it's i mean yeah there's no more that i can add to it <laughs> uh, so yeah it has to be on the list at least on one of our lists yeah, yeah, so I'm glad we're talking about. It. That's interesting that you and I understand what you mean about the 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 pressure in a way like put on this film because of that moniker which I think when I was growing up again it was starting to be like oh Kane was if you talk about a good movie you just say Kane is like the default answer. Um which yeah, I think that is a curse in a way for a film of like holding it to that to that high of a standard. Um and and something too it's it's also I think hard to appreciate it because the things that it did at the time were all like so many of them were brand new, but you look at it now, you're like, Oh, like we've seen this a billion times. Like usually something that's groundbreaking, it falls into that trap too. Like you, there's build up so much. And then you would see and be like, Oh, like, yeah, like I know how all this stuff works. Um, so in a way, maybe because I saw this so early that I, it, it was able to still have that sense of feeling like groundbreaking, even though, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't really understand a lot about it, but it was interesting enough to me to like, I didn't know enough to be like, oh, I've seen this type of montage done a billion times. Oh, okay. Instead of like, whoa, like, what is this? It seems fresh because I maybe hadn't been exposed to so many of the films that this was inspired by. But uh, yeah, interesting. Again, like, I love what you said at the beginning of this with the frameworks, like we we came at film at different times in our lives. So then the, the different films that we would interact with um, would, uh, would then hit us in different ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, cool. So yeah, I'm glad, glad we talked a little bit about, about Kane. I feel like if that wasn't brought up at all on a, on a, on a, on a podcast like this, it would be almost, uh, you know, criminal or something like that. So I'm glad we could talk about it. What, um, cool. So what's, uh, your number two. Okay. So 
My number two is Place in the Sun from 1951, directed by George Stevens, starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, Shelley Winters. And the quick description is a poor boy gets a job working for his rich uncle and ends up falling in love with two women, which I don't think does the movie full justice, but oh well, that is the IMDb description. <laughs> so we're gonna go with that. So yeah, this is a true progression, I think in my, in those, you know, packed two years of sort of watching a million movies uh, late night and living in LA and such, like I said, I think this movie, builds on the themes of personal human connections, relationships, but ups the ante. And because this movie is a bit of an epic sweep. Um, this movie is the first movie where I started to see star quality and naturalistic acting sort of come together. Um, and it sort of up the ante on that. Also, there is something about, I think, I, like I said up top, I think movies to me have also been about introducing ideas and such. And I think even though it's a story that feels very relatable and personal, there's some deep ideas about class and ambition uh, that are being played with over here. And it's very interesting to me as to how these ideas then play with their own perception, where there are points in the movie where I found myself rooting for Monty Eclis character, who's not a good guy actually in in the absolute sense and that once again is the power of film and the complexity of the the story the characters the performances and once again all the different aspects of filmmaking working in concert but yeah it just felt like a heightened spectacle but yet super grounded uh in all its elements and while exploring deep ideas but also frankly being very entertaining creating this constant mood of fear, jealousy, something sinister, but also uh, true and very emotional. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a masterpiece. I still remember the first time watching this movie, having this feeling, should I even be, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. Should I be watching these people do what they're doing or no? It, I, I use the word, voyeuristic with brief encounter, but I think their voyeurism is sort of in a sweet way. Here, you sort of feel like you might be in the wrong being a fly on the wall, witnessing what these people are up to. Um, also just like in the, the glamour side of movies, movie making, even though this is such a real movie, it you have beautiful people like Monty Clifton, Liz Taylor are just, gorgeous in every aspect of the word. Uh, you see that grandeur of film also uh, play up here while it being so real and true. So, so yeah, this is definitely my intro movie to these kind of movies that are spectacles, but also super real and grounded, super character driven, uh, large sweeps. Um, and yeah, so many, many more that I've joined the ranks, but it started here. Very cool. Yeah. This is a film I've not seen. Um, so oh, wow. I, I got, yeah, I have some, some questions then for you, to you about this. So you said that it was the first of this kind. Was that the reason why it, 
is on the list for you or even going back to it now, it was your first exposure to this, but you still think it's the one that resonates the most for you. I guess the way to say it is, is it because this was the first one of this type of film you saw, or is it just the power of this particular film still that transcends the facts that it was the first one yeah. to kind of open up your eyes to this? Power of the film. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'd seen many, many movies of playing with these themes before, for sure, you know, but there's something about, again, brilliant filmmaking and all the different aspects working perfectly in concert in service of the story and the characters. Um, And I think it's about that, that carefully dialed level of performance that's supernaturalistic, but also very starry, um, Mm -hmm. which I think the actors in this movie that balanced a strike. And I, I love the spirit of, you know, James Dean, Brando, uh, and of course, Monty Cliff, what they brought, I mean, I mean, they changed the, the landscape of movies for everybody that followed them, right? So I think that to me is probably the reason why this movie stands out. What was it, uh, how did you discover this particular film? Like, why did you choose to watch this? And I'm assuming it was on DVD. Um, like, why did you pick this one? I was trying to jog my memory, putting this list together as to why. Honestly, I couldn't really think of it. My, the only thing I can probably assume that it might be that I might have just seen some YouTube footage on Monty Clift and just been totally struck by who is this person, never heard of him, somebody who acts like this, looks like this, and then just probably picked the movie that he was known for the most, or at least one of them. And that probably... I had. And I knew Liz Taylor. I had no idea who George Stevens is at that time when I watched this movie. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's, uh, he's a fantastic, I mean, Monty Clift is one of the greats, um, for sure. Um, and that's why I'd heard of this film, but I, but I never actually sat down to, to watch it. But now I'm especially intrigued after what you, you've been saying to, to throw this on a, on a queue or find out where I can stream it. No, I highly recommend it. And, um, uh, this year, early this year, I, I listened to Mike Nichols' uh, biography, which is by Mark Harris, which I highly recommend for any movie lover. And it was heartening to hear Mike Nichols. He watched this movie when it came out in theaters, of course, and was his one of the few movies, this and Streetcar, that were kind of the movies at that time that drew him to film in a way that was sort of indelible. And he watched A Place in the Sun like multiple times and it shaped his film language, which I sort of smiled at that because I was like, of course, because I love Mike Nichols and everything that he's done. So it's sort of funny to see that this is a source for both of us. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense, right? Like your best, uh, some of your favorite artists are inspired by the same art that you would be inspired by. So that, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, all right. It's number one time. Do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. So time for, for number ones. Uh, my number one movie that shaped my love of film was, uh, or is, uh, 2001, um, by Stanley Kubrick came on 1968. The IMDb plot summary, um, after discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with the help from an intelligent supercomputer, HAL 9000. Um, so, so this film, uh, first of all, like Kubrick is my favorite director. Um, this was not the first film that I saw of his. 
Uh, the first film was, I think, Dr. Strangelove, which uh, my dad exposed to me on, on VHS. Uh, and this film, actually, I saw for the first time in 2001 in high school. So also on, on VHS, which is still just crazy to think I would see a film that is so visual um, and large in scope on a pan and scan VHS tape and still just be blown away by this. Um, that uh, is just, I think, speaks to the power of this film that despite... Um, the conditions that I saw it in, it still really, really stuck with me. And, you know, for me, what was so awe-inspiring um, and that really, like, helped get me more into the art of film was the fact that uh, there really isn't as so much of a plot to this movie as there is the themes that they're talking about. Um, you know, there's three kind of key acts to the film that are, that are almost not connected at all, or they're not really connected at all in plot, um, but, you know, definitely in themes about, you know, violence technology, evolution, what makes us human, these gigantic themes um, that uh, Kubrick was examining here. And that is really what resonated to me. Like I, for the first time, saw something that I was like, oh, okay, this is what art is supposed to do, right? Art is supposed to be incredibly um, subjective to the the interpreter. Uh, so yeah, the artist can have an intent and they can put out a work, but what really makes it art and what makes it interesting art is the different ways in which the, the people that are consuming that art can bring their own emotions and their own backgrounds, their own perspectives to that. And what this film did is I was blown away by it. Just like, I didn't really know whether I could follow what was going on, uh, but was so taken aback by what I was seeing again, going back to like the mise-en-scene in terms of yeah, how he constructed the shots, how the music was working and what this, what this film was doing. And then also a bit about these themes that I immediately, again, this is pre-internet um, or, I mean, there was the internet, but not the same, uh, there's no Amazon yet. Um, so I couldn't, you know, order a book on Amazon about this, but I did go to the library and started getting all these books about Stanley Kubrick and really starting to learn, but not necessarily like with Citizen Kane was about how was the production made? What did Orson Welles do? How did he construct these shots? With this film, it was like how it was made was not as much important to me as about what it was trying to say. Um, so that was when I started getting into reading around film analysis um, and getting all these different books on like people's different interpretations of it and what did they take away? And, and that helped me really understand that, wow, like films could be interpreted in all these different ways, much like art can. Um, but it really speaks to, at the same time, your personal connection to that because you can take away something very different than someone else. Like two people can see 2001 and take away different things. And I just think that would speak to the power of this film. And I had never really realized that before, you know, as a young kid that art could do that until this film and then all of the, the books and things that I, that I read after and since then, you know, went and watched all of Kubrick's films and he's my favorite director. Um, and this is, you know, one of my favorite movies of his, uh, which I still try to see every time it's playing in theaters. I mean, I own it on, you know, uh, home video, but seeing it on a, even if a 65, you know, inch TV is, is nothing like the experience of seeing it on the big screen. So every time this plays anywhere here in LA, like I'll go try to see it. Um, so I can, and every time I see it, I feel like I pick up new things. Um, so for me, that's why this is my number one. It, it not only showed me um, that film is an art, but in a, in a way, like it really showed me what art was um, as a form of expression. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that this is going to be your number one. <laughs> so I'm not surprised uh, by that. Yeah. When it comes to, I, I said this too, like to me, movies are about human condition relationships, but then also ideas and themes. If there was a movie about ideas and themes, it's probably this one. This doesn't make my top lists, uh, 
only because it doesn't have the human relationship component explored in, in that kind of way that I love. Although if you dig beneath the layers, it has that too, of course, because ultimately it all comes down to who are we as people and why do we do the things the, the way we do them, right? So there's definitely that, but, but yeah, huge fan, watched it a million times, try and seek it out whenever it comes out on a big screen. There's no other theatrical experience like this movie. Uh, we owe so much to this movie in terms of, you know, this delicate balance of spectacle and high art and ideas and themes that it, it's launched. Um, and many, many directors, Nolan, now Denis Villeneuve, et cetera, all in the wake of this movie, which is pretty exciting. Like, I don't think the blockbuster movie landscape would be what it is had it not been for this this film. So yeah, it's it's up there. One of my favorite connections to this movie is visiting Stanley Kubrick's exhibit uh, that was going all around. It came to San Francisco as well. And just looking at the artifacts and the drawings and the models and everything of how this movie was constructed and just being in total awe of this person who never repeats himself. Uh, I'm still not fully caught up on his entire canon. So there's more homework that I have to do. So yeah, Kubrick has to be on the list. So for sure. Um, well, I will follow that up with my number one, another master who I, I know is you're a fan of as well is uh, Hitchcock. So <laughs> my number one is Notorious from 1946 starring Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains. And the quick description is the daughter of a convicted Nazi spy is asked by American agents to gather information on a ring on Nazi scientists in South America. How far will she have to go to ingratiate herself with them? Um, honestly, I could have picked any Hitchcock movie perhaps on this because I think all the themes that I've been talking about of human relationship, human condition, ideas, themes, and then all the different departments working in concert in service of characters and the story. There are very few people who strike that balance, but also make it super entertaining and fun and riveting, which is another thing that we explicitly haven't talked about movies is that they also have to be fun, you know, in addition to all the other stuff that we've been talking about. And so there's nobody else who, to me, strikes a balance between all of those things. And I think this movie is probably, does it probably the best than any other movie in my mind, where once again, you have this sort of epic sweep, uh, history-driven, real-life stakes at play, but at the same time, it feels really personal as to what is happening in the lives of these people. Um, so personal that when you're in that wine cellar and you know stuff is going to happen, it's the stakes are high in the, in the context of the movie and the film, but also the larger implications of the world that they're living in at that time. Like you feel the, the, the pressure and the layers of that in that moment, which is, you know, so brilliant. Um, from a performance star level, once again, like you see two people at the height of their powers being grounded and naturalistic, but also 
exuding their star power and charisma in a way that's so palpable, even more so than A Place in the Sun. Because I think to me, this movie really sort of puts star performance and what being a star even means. Like Cary Grant is ultimately Cary Grant in the movie, but you're you're sort of seeing him from the lens of what the story is and what the character is. Um, and then sort of, you know, creating this mood of thrill and mystery with themes of love and am I in the right? Am I in the wrong? How far will I go? Like the description said as well, all that is being handled so deftly um, and you're at the edge of your seat uh, all through. You're rooting for people, your allegiances are shifting. Even Claude Rains is sympathetic at times, which again, I think is such a powerful thing that film does that it it shows the, the unlikable or the misunderstood in ways that are deeper. So you get to understand their human condition, which which to me, I think Viola Davis once said this in one of her speeches is that film is the only business which is the business of empathy, which I think is so true because every person uh, has some redeeming qualities to them, I would think. And I think this movie goes there as well. So yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites and it's just a fun ride. I can watch it whenever I want. There's no prep to really get into it and yet it satisfies you in deep, compelling ways. You know, Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors, and this is one of his best films, one of my favorite films of his. Um, I, it's, it's so, yeah, it's, it's so perfect. Um, I, so I first saw this film actually in a Hitchcock class that I took in college. Um, so I had liked Hitchcock as, you know, before going to college, but it was more of his later works, um, the sixties, like the birds and psycho and, uh, even like North Northwest, but I hadn't seen a lot of his older films until this class where he watched mostly most of his filmography. I was just blown away by the, by this film in particular. Um, there's especially that incredible scene where she's holding like that key <clears throat> behind her back and the camera's starts way up high and just like gradually goes in and like zooms into this key, which plays a very important plot element. Uh, but it's how he uses those techniques to just ratchet up attention of something that like, okay, she's holding a key, but how do you make that elevate that small thing in the plot to the amount of tension and suspense that it actually has um, in the plot, even though it's such a small element, he does that so well. And that, that one shot just really sticks in me, but yeah, some of my favorite actors of all time are in this film and they're all firing on like all cylinders, top of their game. I mean, just um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. This, this film is, is, is perfect. Um, it's, it's so good. Um, yeah. Even uh, some mission impossible Two was sort of a remake of this in a way. I don't know if you've seen mission impossible Two, but they, they kind of took a lot of these plot elements. Uh, so I think maybe that shows the, the power of this film, but um, another thing that's kind of interesting too, that, that we discussed in, in the Hitchcock class and kind of goes back to something that, um, you know, I was speaking about with uh, the good, the bad and the ugly as well is like Hitchcock when he was a filmmaker at the time was known as like the blockbuster, if you know, use that term kind of loosely, the popcorn blockbuster guy of his time. And it was never really appreciated as the artist that he was when he was working. And that was always some, some chip on his shoulder that he had. Um, so I think it's definitely like a, a, a testament to the power of him like, as an auteur and just the art that it, um, yeah, he made this film because he wants to, you know, using giant stars, you know, it had a, a big budget. It was something that, uh, you know, was a very, uh, 
um, you know, uh, audience pleasing uh, genre, but he's able to elevate that um, and resonating with you now after, you know, the movie's 50 some, actually even more than that years old now um, to just still be hitting you like this. On this, I'm just curious too, like what, what, when did you come across this film and in what way? Cause I think what's interesting about this discussion here today is that we did kind of stumble upon these films and our love of film at different times in our lives. So I'm just curious on what, when you discovered this film and how. Yeah, it's the same time frame, the mid 2010s. Like I said, all these movies are were watched in the same time frame. Um, how did I come to it? I think it was like you said, just in a different time period, which is being super entertained and blown away by Hitchcock sort of more mainstream movies uh, that I'd seen. And by then I'd watched enough of Cary Grant and Bergman and then to find that, oh, all these people collaborated together. I have to watch this movie. Not really, I mean, I knew I would be entertained and delighted by it, but was not expecting to be blown away by the depth of it, you know? And I think that's sort of where my relationship with Hitchcock pivoted, not only for all the movies that I saw since, but also the movies that I revisited that I'd seen before that, oh, there's a lot going on here beneath the surface in terms of, once again, human relationships and why they do what they do. And then how are all these techniques working to really highlight all of that? So it sort of made him my favorite director. I think I've at this point seen pretty much everything that he's made. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Fantastic film and interesting. And I can see why this would be a one to give you like a new appreciation for what, what Hitch did. And then to even go back and see the depths of even the films that you had seen before, which is something again, after taking this class and being exposed to some of these other films that he made like Notorious, all of a sudden now, you know, Psycho and the birds and North Northwest just become even better because you can start picking up on, on how, what, of a, what a master he was in terms of a filmmaker. Yeah, he's definitely one of my favorites. Totally. This movie also just has a lot of, and I was just thinking as to why this one, uh, and there are other movies that where he does this too, but I think there's something about the pacing and you're sort of in the breadth of the people in the movie, which I think gives you the time to really see those layers, which maybe are not as obvious uh, or at the surface or something like a North by Northwest where there's a lot happening and mm -hmm. they're faster paced and more sort of plot driven. Not that this movie is not plot driven, but you're in the breadth of the people, which I, I really, really love. Um, so yeah, that's our list. Um, any honorable mentions that didn't make your list, Alex? Yeah, this again was, a. I mean, I could go on with, I know. <laughs> a long set of honorable mentions, but uh, just as I was going back and thinking of this, these are all films that I was seeing again in this time period of uh, uh, mid to late teen years, which is when really sparked my love. So this would be films like Lawrence of Arabia, um, Clockwork Orange, Sunset Boulevard, Third Man, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, The Insider. Those would be the films that uh, almost made my list. What about you? Good list. Uh, also Lawrence of Arabia. All About Eve, The Apartment, Raging Bull. Nice, nice. Yeah, this was really interesting. Any um, any like parting uh, themes or observations that you can pull out of this? I think this was fascinating. I, I definitely have some. Yeah, what about you? No. What, what are you thinking? For your stuff, 
only because we've had this conversation years ago in Seattle, sitting outside in a cafe, eating terrible spaghetti, <laughs> that I knew that for you, the crafts and the visualness of this medium sort of trumps a lot of the other aspects. So I think it was, we've never talked about the specific movies, but kind of seeing the specific movies laid out and then marrying that to that framework and what I know about you and talking through it in that level of detail um, just made a lot of sense. Um, and then also, I think maybe a new thing that struck me, which I knew before, but just hearing you talk about it, which is the humility of creating art, you know, and and how the intent of that can be, you know, pretty basic in some ways and, and how that takes its own life and becomes high art and, and you know, this sort of tension that we have of, especially as movie lovers and critics and such as to what is high art and what isn't. So that was fun to see in your list that you have, you know, the greats, but you, they're all greats in their own way, of course, but they probably didn't, not all of them started as greats when, when they hit the scene. So I think that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, what about you? What did what themes emerge in my list for you? Yeah, just just uh, the, the the there were a couple larger themes, but I thought the most interesting thing was that all the films you mentioned, or the not all the three films you mentioned, were all made within five years of each other. Um, I don't know if that two of them British films. Um, I don't know if that period in terms of film history and what the evolution of the narrative was in that that sense. Maybe also because I know you're. Uh, a big fan of acting styles and, and, and actors. Um, and you, know, you mentioned that with a couple of your films, I, I would, and I don't know that medium is very well at all. Maybe that time, that type of acting was something that you're just drawn to that specific style of acting that was around at that time. Maybe I thought that was really interesting just that they're all, you know, came out so close to one another. Um, but yeah, I'm not surprised again at the things you hit on in your films, just because we've had similar conversations before where you're, angle into into this uh this medium is a lot around acting a lot around characters and emotions and what they are doing and what they're expressing and all three of these films i've only seen two of them of the three that you mentioned but both of the films that uh, i've seen on your list definitely are very much about character emotion and uh the human condition in that way very very specifically though around character which is expressed in acting um versus uh other parts of what filmmaking does i mean those are the things that stand out and brief encounter notorious to me it's the characters and the actors and what they're doing uh more so than like going to my list you know the 2001 i mean i was literally didn't name a single actor in that film there are actors but the actors are are not at all what is important in that movie um, it is what Kubrick did. Um, so it's just interesting seeing that that dynamic. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you didn't pick up on one other theme that they're also all black and white. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. To, I guess the time period they were made in, not so much about the acting style. I think to me, it is this post-war time period where I think filmmakers everybody from the directors to the actors to all the department heads and such i think i'm just imagining that they are in this time period where life has taken such a interesting turn of being in this time period and coming out of it post-war that it's challenging everybody to just dig deeper you know explore 
complicated issues of life and people and bring their artistry to tell those stories that are more layered and more complex. I think that's what draws me because that's really what, as I said, and as you picked up on is my love for film. So I think not to me, I'm not a film historian, but to me, this time period, it seems like where this started to galvanize where, oh yeah, we're not just going to make movies that are pure entertainment or that tell you to do the right thing or only show the quote unquote right thing. No, we're going to deal with the complexities of human behavior and the human condition and see its mess and, and what it does. Um, so I think that's why this draws me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can say I, I'm not as much of a, like, I'm not a film historian either. Um, but I, but I do think there is that post world war, especially like in Europe where, you know, notorious is a British filmmaker. And so was brief encounter, um, where they were going through a lot of things and the, the artists were, I think tackling more gray areas, just having seen the devastation and the horror that humanity can, can put on the world. And they lived it more than, than, um, than especially like we did here in the States, just being, far away from that, um, that I think that definitely impacted the art and uh, something that clearly is interesting to you on some level of that exploration of those gray areas, because both Notorious and Brief Encounter, again, I can't speak to his place in the sun because I haven't seen it, but both of those movies are very much like in that there isn't like a right or wrong answer really with any of it. Um, and uh, it's just about how those characters deal with the ambiguity, but that's life. There are no right or wrong things in life, really. It's everything are just choices you make and what happens with those choices. There's not a wrong choice or a right choice. It's just a choice. Um, and then what happens in that is, is what your life becomes. And I do think those, those films definitely touch on that a lot. Yeah. Well, that's our episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. This was super fun uh, preparing and talking through it. Uh, hope you really enjoyed the discussion and learned something about yourself uh, or at least found some new movie recommendations to check out or perhaps revisit some old favorites. Um, uh, goodbye until next time. Later. <laughs>